0: This is World Beyond War, a new
1: podcast. Good morning. This is the World Beyond War podcast, Sunday morning, April 28th. This is Mark Elliott Stein. I'm here with Greta Zaro, and we are speaking to Margaret Flowers, who is inside the Venezuelan Embassy in Washington, D.C. Margaret Flowers is part of popularresistance.org and has been an anti-war activist for a long time. Margaret, could you possibly introduce yourself and tell us where you are and what's going on?
2: Sure, thank you for having me. So I'm the co-director of Popular Resistance and now we are part of what is called the Embassy Protection Collective, which is being basically coordinated by three organizations, Popular Resistance, Code Pink, and the Answer Coalition, and we have been staying in the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. since April 10th to prevent the opposition uh, led by Juan Guaido, who the United States is recognizing as their coup president, although he has no power in in Venezuela, Um, and he, with the assistance of the U.S. law enforcement has been able to already take over a consulate in New York and two military attache buildings in D.C. And so we're working, we're here in the, in the embassy, basically physically protecting it to, to prevent them from coming in and occupying it.
1: I saw some pictures yesterday of Secret Service agents outside the building. Do you believe that the building will be taken over at some point and that you will all be arrested? Well, we have
2: that that we have that concern constantly. Um, we were concerned that last Thursday, April, I think it was the twenty fifth, uh, was. Uh, um, a day that the diplomats were gone from, and we thought that that might be the day the police came. We were able to mobilize a lot of people. We had about 50 to 75 people sleeping here that night. And I think that physical presence prevented the Secret Service from coming in. But it's certain, you know, we're certain that they're trying to figure out a way to be able to take this building. It's just very difficult because we have the permission of the Venezuelan government to be here. In Article 22 of the the Vienna Convention, says that host countries have a, have a responsibility to protect the embassies in their country and respect the governments who own them. This building is owned by the Venezuelan government. And so we've made it very clear to the Secret Service and the State Department that we are now tenants of this building, that we have the legal right to be here, that if they come in, they do not have the legal right to trespass in here. If they arrest us, it will be a false arrest, and we will pursue prosecution. We have an excellent team of lawyers who are working on this with us. And so we also have made the point that we are uh, both residential and commercial residents because uh, we are living here, and we are also working here, and that in Washington DC, it requires a due process before you evict someone. Now, that all said, you know, we know that the United States has no regard for law, neither domestic nor international, and so it, you know, they could easily decide that we're going to recognize Juan Guaido as they have, and you are illegally there, and come in and, and arrest us. So you know, we're, we're hoping that we can continue to hold this space because the longer we hold it, the more time we give the Venezuelan government to complete their negotiations. They are working to find a country that's willing to be a protectorate for the embassy. The United States has already found a protectorate for their embassy in Caracas but the Venezuelan government has to approve that and the and the government the Venezuelan government is waiting until they find a protectorate before they approve the one in Caracas and so we are calling ourselves the interim protectorate and if I could this is just really important because if the United States does seize this embassy then the Venezuelan government has said that they will respond by seizing their embassy in Caracas. And this would then uh, set off a escalation of conflict between the two countries, the possibility that other countries that have been allied with the US that are recognizing Juan Guaido may be turning over their embassies uh, to Juan Guaido and then a, a real global escalation of this conflict.
0: <sighs> Margaret how long have you been occupying the embassy and why is it coming to a head this
2: weekend well we've been here since um, April 10th and uh, I think the the we so the diplomatic staff are no longer in the building and we are are tasked with um, with protecting it both uh, actually in the in the past 3 days we had the vice foreign minister ron carlos the foreign minister jorge ariaza and president maduro all sending us messages of support uh because they want us to be here protecting this this building but uh the opposition you know we're standing kind of between the united states and some a lot of oil and a lot of minerals and so we know that they're trying to figure out a way to get us out of here and um and that the weekend you know we know that uh, Juan Guaido's people are in Bogota, Colombia, meeting and trying to figure out what to do. And we anticipate they probably want to come in here Monday morning and, you know, say that this is theirs now. And you know, it's hard to mobilize people. Although we did have an, about 50 people here last night, so we just think that they probably want to start off the week you know, with the embassy and they're already doing provocative things like uh, sending opposition people in that are pretty clearly acting like disruptors and paid opposition to try to provoke us into a conflict that they can use. So we're doing very uh, disciplined protocols and nonviolence and de-escalation and things like that and making sure that everything is very well cleaned and taken care of so that we don't give them any excuse to justify coming in and taking us out.
1: It's great to hear how prepared you all are and how well you're thinking through this because clearly the stakes are very high and this is a um, Such a serious operation, you know, I just want you to know I'm sure you're already aware of this that the world is watching and a lot of people are inspired by what you're doing.
2: Well, that is great, and we we appreciate the messages of solidarity. We are going to have to continue to hold this physical presence. The the success of this depends upon us having a physical presence here, continuing to have favorable media, and not giving them any excuse to take us out. And so um, any people that can support us uh, physically by coming here or by uh, sending in donations of food and supplies, we do have a lot of people that are staying here, and and we're running a kitchen. We're... We've got a kitchen manager um, to make sure that people are fed. There's a, We're doing security 24 hours a day, and that's uh, that takes a lot of resources as well. So um, any folks that are able to support us in any way, we would we would really appreciate that. And if you go to popularresistance.org in the slider, you'll find an article with information about how you can contact us. And also, if I could mention, we're doing public events every night because the embassy, the government of Venezuela really appreciates us using the space as an educational and cultural space. And so that also uh, brings people in, shows them that we're having folks coming and going. Yesterday we had someone as young as three months old and someone as old as 106 here for our our events. Oh my
1: God, wow. So
2: we're just um, trying to make it as unpalatable for them as possible to make the optics really bad for them to come in here and, and take this over.
1: Did you say 106? Yes. Huh. Wow. Can you tell a little more about that? I'm, um, yeah, I don't
2: know a lot about her. She was the grandmother of, uh, of a couple who came to uh, participate in our events yesterday.
1: I'm curious, Margaret, um, if you could tell us about your background with the Venezuela um, issue. Were, were you part of the delegation to Caracas?
2: I was, this is, you know, Venezuela is something that Kevin Zeese and I have been covering on popular resistance for many years. I mean, as long as we've had popular resistance, because there is so so much misinformation about it in the United States and because we see it as really a key country in Latin America, one that was able to stand up to U.S. empire and um, and really start to really challenge neoliberalism. And so we did Well, Kevin Zies, my partner and co-director of popular resistance, was down in Venezuela for the 2018 election of President Maduro, which was a really excellently run and uh, legitimate election, despite what the U.S. media tells you. And then we were part of a peace delegation that went down in March and We arrived uh, just early into the power outage that the United States uh, perpetrated against Venezuela. They were able to trace the cyber attack to Houston and Chicago. And then there were actually some physical attacks on the infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, while we were there. And we, you know, had a chance to meet with government officials like the foreign minister and their human rights minister and the president of their electoral council. We met with the community groups. We had time to go out into the you know streets and talk to people and interview them, as well as going into the barrios, which is where there's very strong support for President Maduro because the Venezuelan government through the Bolivarian process has really prioritized meeting the needs of those who are the poorest. And so we went into a barrio of 1.5 million people that prior to Hugo Chavez being in power was not even on the map and got no services. And now they have brand new schools, which we saw, and they have hospitals and dental clinics and medical centers and resources to do, you know, the things that they need in their community, like growing food. So, uh, you know, we just see this as you know, if the United States can take Venezuela as kind of the part of our reasserting the Monroe doc, Doctrine. Um, then this is this will be a critical juncture because we're already seeing what's happening, you know, in places like Colombia and Brazil and Argentina. So. Um, Yeah, so, and I should mention that while we were down there, we also had a private meeting with President Maduro, which was very fortunate. And that occurred basically because American Airlines canceled our flights and we were stuck down there. And so that gave President Maduro's team time to organize a meeting with him.
0: What was the core message that President Maduro said to your peace delegation? Is there one thing in particular that he recommended
2: in terms of how we can support Venezuela? Well, I mean, a couple of things. Um, one, he's, he spent a lot of time going through what they had learned about the power outage. Um, and then he talked about how much he loved the United States, how he's traveled here and, you know, New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore. He was given a, offered a contract with the LA Dodgers and he follows basketball very closely. And he said, you know, we really are asking for unity and peace uh, And he didn't say it then, but he had said in subsequent interviews, you know, we want peace, but we're prepared to do what it takes to protect our sovereignty. And this real, you know, kind of ridiculous situation that people are calling President Maduro a dictator, although Venezuela is one of the most highly participatory democratic countries that I've been in. Um, but he has also, since President Trump has been threatening intervention, they have armed and trained more than 2 million civilian militia. So they're very well prepared to, to protect their um, sovereignty. But really, his message was one of, we need your solidarity, we need your unity, and, and um, and so I see that what we're doing here in the embassy is honoring our agreement that we would do what we could to uh, impact our own government in the United States to stop its U.S. imperialist interventionist policies and practices.
1: And this surely goes back to many generations of um, U.S. intervention in Latin America. There's, yes. there's so much context here. And I, I've got to say, from, from my point of view, when I saw what happened, I believe it was late January of this year. Yes, January 23rd. Yes, January 23rd, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, a regime change was announced from the Oval Office in the United States. Uh, I was absolutely shocked that such a destructive and dangerous, risky um, decision could be made. And I I believe that the world is in confusion about how to respond to this. Certainly a a lot of people are confused what to believe. Um, But that's
2: the, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is that the media, is, and we witnessed it when we were down there, what the media was saying about what was happening in the reality were completely opposite things. Yeah. And so part of what we've been doing while we're here in the embassy is that we kind of said, well, there's so many lies, we have to make the truth really big so people can see it. So we've been, with permission of the Venezuelan government, we've been putting messages on the front of the embassy. So we have, in the 32 windows along the, the street sidewalk level, we have a timeline of the U.S.-led coup, so people can see that. We mm-hmm. have um, large banners that say things like "No war for oil," uh, "Stop the deadly sanctions," "Stop the coup," "Peace," and um, you know. And, and we have uh, our security folks out there during the day that you know can answer questions and things when people are curious and they're, and they're walking by. Plus, we're generating a lot of media from inside here. We have some embedded media through uh, TeleSUR. Uh, through Mint Press, Grayzone, Sputnik. And then we've had uh, a lot of commercial media and other outlets coming through as well. And we're just trying to offer them um, this perspective, which we believe is, is grounded in facts and respect for law, domestic and international law.
1: I think we we all see how high the stakes are here. And yeah. um, I I am also very much concerned that there may be... Um, Various, various forces that would like nothing better than the distraction of a new war in Venezuela
2: Yeah, it's it's really a it has tremendous, you know global ramifications because Venezuela is kind of the door into You know stopping the left movements in South America Which we know that the Western capitalist countries have been doing for many, many decades, that's what NATO was all about, um, stopping left movements in the world. And um, we also know that uh, this, because Venezuela has developed relationships with Russia and China. And in fact, in March, Juan Guaido's chief, quote unquote, chief of of staff, Roberto Marrero, was arrested by the Venezuelan government along with his bodyguard, and they found, information through their cell phones and computers and things that they were organizing eight to ten terror cells within Venezuela using money seized by the U.S. government from Venezuela, siphoned through the Bank of America and Colombia, hiring mercenaries from Central America, training them in Colombia, and were making plans to attack infrastructure and assassinate leaders. And the day after that, Russia arrived with a plane that had a general and 99 military advisors, including intelligence advisors. And they have now uh, assisted Venezuela with setting up a missile defense system. And China is is providing supplies to Venezuela as well and has a stake in the oil company. So this is is not just about Venezuela. It's about, you know, as you said, the long history of US imperialism. It's about, um, you know, The whole movement in South America for sovereignty and self determination and getting, you know, out from underneath the Monroe Doctrine Uh, and it's about the kind of the whole shifting global um, power and how the US is no longer a hegemon and we're entering into a a phase of being a multipolar world, but the US is going to do that kicking and screaming, obviously.
0: What did you perceive as sort of the impacts of these economic sanctions that the U.S. is imposing on Venezuela when you were there? Did did you see those those negative impacts on the people there?
2: Yeah, well, we met with one of their top economists, Posculina Curcio, as well as um, oh, I'm blanking on his last name. His first name is Henry Henry Bentura. He's the um, he used to be the health minister. Now he's in charge of procurement of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, there is plenty of food in Venezuela. It's They don't have access to all sorts of foods. So if you go to a restaurant, they won't have everything on the menu, but they'll certainly have food on the streets. There are lots of food trucks. There's restaurants, there's um, produce trucks, you know, stands on the corners. But because of the, both the economic sanctions, you know, they can't, because of the U.S. economic sanctions, they can't buy all the things they would like to import. Um, also, U.S. kind of, are, we have the ability to basically set like the, the the values, how their currency is pegged to the dollar. And so Wall Street has been kind of doing that in a way that's caused a serious hyperinflation. So the prices are really high uh, for things there. And that makes it difficult. But I think, you know, so people are are don't have the availability, of all the, the availability of all the foods they were like, but they do have food. The government provides 6 million families with these clap boxes once or twice a month that have basic staples. And so the babies were fat, the children looked healthy, they were running around and playing. But I think the, the severest um, impact is on their healthcare system because they've seen a reduction of 86% from the amount of pharmaceuticals that they had in the past. And
1: Damn. so they
2: have made agreements with Russia and China to do monthly deliveries of pharmaceuticals and medical supplies, like you know, surgical supplies. They've made a contract with the International Red Cross to help them distribute those out to the medical centers and hospitals, as well as making sure that all their hospitals have a good generator system because of the repeated attacks on their electrical system. So I see them trying to do things to, um, to deal with that. You know, but a lot of this is just tied to the, the drop in oil prices, the speculation. The, really, the business class there has tried to do everything they could to thwart um, the efforts of the Venezuelan government to make sure that people have access to basic needs. Because when the Venezuelan government started to s- try to control the prices of basic goods, then the business owners started reducing production or hoarding those goods to drive those prices back up again. So it's really a difficult situation uh, that they're trying to mani- you know, maneuver within. So people are doing basically okay in terms of having access to food, but healthcare is a problem.
1: Margaret, what do you see as um, the, the best possible thing that can happen? I mean, I think we can all envision the horrible worst case scenarios at this point. But what what are we hoping for? Is is there anything going on on the negotiation front? Because from my perspective, just reading the news, I'm not seeing any, any progress towards resolution. What about you?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the US has been basically thwarting that. The Maduro government was negotiating in the Dominican Republic with the opposition last year. I think it began in December of 2017. They had negotiated a peace agreement. They were getting ready to sign it in the spring of 2018. And then uh, Rex Tillerson was the Secretary of State, then flew down to Colombia, and President Uribe called the opposition and told them not to sign it. The US told the opposition, don't participate in the election, don't you know, run your can- candidates, don't vote. So the US was trying to really sabotage that effort, um, but the Venezuelan government went ahead and um, complied with all the things that they made in the agreement, even though the opposition didn't sign it. And then, um, since this kind of whole issue has been happening around this attempted coup, which has failed, but the United States doesn't seem to want to recognize that fact, um, right. the Jorge Ariaza, the foreign minister, has met twice with Elliot Abrams to talk with him, but he. Ariasa basically told us that Elliot Abrams said this is going to be a protracted struggle, and of course Abrams has a long history of this. That's
1: and that, for sure.
2: Right, and President Maduro told us that he's happy to meet with President Trump and negotiate with him. Mexico has said that they would be willing to be the host country for those negotiations. The Maduro government has been very clear that they want peace, and um, the United States just doesn't want that. So it's, it's very problematic. How do you negotiate with someone who doesn't actually want to negotiate with you? But I think the one point of leverage they have and the best outcome that we could see is what's happening right here, right now in the embassy, because the U.S. has a very large embassy in Caracas. They've made a contract with Switzerland to be a protectorate for that embassy Venezuela has to approve that agreement. So Venezuela is in active negotiations with countries to find a protectorate for the embassy here. And then hopefully they could agree that that Venezuela would approve the Switzerland contract and the United States would approve whatever country would have a contract to protect this building that then we would that building would be handed over to that country, we would step out of it, no longer be needed as interim protectors and that that would start to form a basis for further negotiations to, you know, stop these, these you, well, they're really, we call them sanctions, but they're not sanctions because sanctions imply that there was a legal process and that, that a punishment was deemed to be necessary. Right. Technically unilateral coercive measures, which are uh, illegal under the United Nations Charter, And so I would really um, hope that we would start to see some more international pressure for the United States to end these violations of international law, especially when when you're talking about the healthcare system, and we are directly causing deaths. There was just a study that came out showing that as effective these it coercive measures, 40,000 Venezuelans have died in the last two years who would not have otherwise died. So this is, this is a form of war that's going on right now against Venezuela, which they're resisting as best they can. And I think that if we can protect the embassy and hopefully then we can continue to push for, for ending these economic measures.
1: Well, I, I, rea- I feel encouraged to, to see that what you're trying to do is actually plant a seed of, of negotiation that could, that could grow into a bigger um, you know, a- agreement. I, I think I'm starting to gather that that's what, that's what you're hoping for, is that the negotiations over this embassy could form a basis of something more
2: either either that's going to happen which is what we're doing everything that we can do to make happen or i fear that it's going to go in the other way and if you know the us government seizes this embassy we're going to see an escalation of conflict which doesn't end it doesn't end our responsibility if that happens if we're taken out of this embassy we still have to continue to fight against the united states government and to build that movement that puts pressure on it to not you know cross that line of further military intervention and, you know, further economic warfare against Venezuela.
1: What do you see as the role of, say, the European powers, the, the so-called Lima group, which I, I, know, I don't know much about, but I was, I, I was not at all surprised that um, the Trump administration would try to pull off a reckless act of regime change in January, but I was shocked that France and England and other Latin American countries went along with it. What do you see as the status of that?
2: I mean, well, those were, you know, NATO countries and Western allies and the United States is still a very powerful force in the world that has shown that any country that, you know, tries to stand up to it, they're gonna take retaliatory measures again. So I don't think it was a huge surprise, but I think that, you know, reality is starting to kind of like, you know, surface here because these European countries and, and including uh, also institutions like the International Monetary Fund are finding that this guy, you know, Juan Guaido, who's claiming to be president, in effect has zero power, zero access to, you know, governmental institutions, can't sign anything in the name of Venezuela. So it was a funny story about during the, um, the blackout in Caracas The French government, which France has recognized, Juan Guaido, uh, didn't have water in their embassy. And so they wrote a very nice letter to the Maduro government asking (laughs) them if they would help them to restore water in their embassy. Um, Guaido went to meet with the IMF and they're like, well, you can't sign anything. You know, you can't we can't actually deal with you. So I think that that reality is going to come that... There's no there there for these countries to talk to Guaido, but it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation for them because of the U.S. retaliation, just like it's a difficult situation for countries who are allies of Venezuela to be willing to step up and be a protectorate because that puts them in the crosshairs of, of U.S. imperialism. So, you know, we'll see. I think that the more time goes along, this whole facade of, Gua- of Guaido is going to fall apart. That would be my hope. Uh, and in terms of these groups, you know, the Lima group really, you know, is, is designed to protect kind of, you know, capitalist interests. But yeah. even the Lima group was not supportive of military intervention. The Organization of American States is really interesting because I think they've made a huge error that could cause their demise because they had an initial vote over whether to recognize Guaido as the president. Their rules require a two-thirds majority to do that. They were not able to achieve two-thirds and so they turned around and changed the rules on April 9th said that they only needed a simple majority and so they then voted on April 9th to recognize Juan Guaido but that sent a message to all the other countries that are there that oh hey the you know OAS will just change its rules so that it can recognize a coup in your country. So that's causing great division. And as a result for Caribbean countries, uh, their OAS delegates walked out of the OAS in protest over that decision. And that's really what set the stage for losing uh, control over this embassy, potentially, because there were still OAS diplomats working in this embassy. And it was the State Department after that vote on April 9th that ordered them to leave. But they were supposed to give them 60 days, but they didn't give them 60 ah, days.
1: I see, so that is what led directly to the embassy being in crisis.
2: Yes.
0: Just to wrap up, I know you have to go soon, Margaret, but I wanted to ask if you're generally being met with positive views from people walking you know, by the street when they see your signs, or people that come to your events at the embassy, are you getting you know, generally positive feedback and support from the public at large?
2: Well, from the, you know, activist community in Washington, D.C., the D.C. area that are coming to our public events, there's tremendous solidarity and um, commitment to trying to help, you know, protect this. But like I said, we I can't stress enough that, that we need folks here because we're going to have to potentially hold this down for several weeks while they can complete their negotiations. As far as being in Georgetown, I think we have to recognize that Georgetown is one of the elite areas of Washington, D.C., that there's a lot of Um, kind of other, you know, wealthy and connected people, particularly to the government in this area, just actually at the bottom of our street is a Saudi military building of some sort. So it's not exactly Uh a friendly neighborhood. But, but interestingly, um, I didn't mention that in addition to the timeline of the coup, we have two very large placards in front of the building, four by eight feet, where we put an imperialist checklist and, you know, kind of listed the tactics that United States uses over and over again, because they just keep recycling these same tactics, they're not very creative. Um, And, you know, the ones that have been successful in Venezuela and the ones that haven't, like they, they're making the economy scream, but they haven't been able to assassinate Maduro despite their attempts. The other one is a list of US regime change results and the disastrous outcomes that happen to countries when the U.S. intervenes and why it's ridiculous that Juan Guaido is inviting U.S. military intervention because that never turns out well for any country, especially for the most vulnerable, uh, which we know when we walked into those barrios, the first thought I had was, you know, these amazing people that are fighting so hard for their sovereignty and to, you know, to live their lives. This is where the civilian militias are strongest. This is where the support for the Maduro government is strongest. And these will probably be the first targets of, you know, U.S. military. So uh, people are, it's interesting, when they run by or walk by, they are reading those placards. They're taking pictures of them. They're reading the timeline. So I think we're providing a view that they don't normally see. So even though they don't talk to us, they may not feel comfortable doing that. I think they're, it, they're getting some information and hopefully you know, it's impacting them in some way.
1: Speaking of Washington, D.C., I also just want to mention um, a lot of people don't know that Washington, D.C. is where Juan Guaido um, became connected with United States conservative groups. That's um, right. A lot, a lot of people don't know that he was a student at George Washington University, just, you know, probably a few blocks from where you are right now, and that um, he was trained in Washington, D.C. Um, well, he's not
2: just trained by in Washington, D.C. He was a student at GW where he was educated under um, this guy, I think Luis beres Batilla, who's a former head of the IMF and who's been bankrolling a lot of what's going on with building the opposition in Venezuela, and um, Guaido is part of what's referred to as Generation 2007. Dan Cohen did an excellent article on this in the the Grey Zone, and basically they did retreats and were trained by an organization called CANVAS, which is a regime change organization that came out of uh, the Otpor movement, movement, the US funded Otpor movement in Serbia that overthrew Milosevic, and so, Guaido was a leader of the violent barricades called warimbas that they had in place in 2014 in Venezuela that killed 43 people. And then he's part of the same the party, Popular Will, that uh, Leopold Lopez, who's in jail right now in house arrest, uh, was inciting these warimbas. They they did them again in 2017, and over 100 people were killed at that point. So he is a regime change trained, you know, United States- Mm -hmm. Operative, violent extremist operative opposition person. And the folks that they're bringing in, like Carlos Vecchio, who was also, he was like, um, Leopoldo Lopez was referred to as the CEO of Popular Will. Uh, Vecchio was the operations officer. He's the one that made it all happen. And he actually had to flee Venezuela because he was indicted for violent acts. And so he's been living in Miami. So that's who Guaido chose as his, uh, as his ambassador. And then um, the, their OAS person, uh, Gustavo Taré, was a member of Congress during the 70s to 90s, which was a period of great violence in Venezuela, disappearances, violence, inequality, corruption. And he has also been allegedly involved in the assassination, assassination attempts against Maduro. So these are the kind of uh, people that are, that are represent this opposition that's trying to take power. And this is why, again, it's so critical. We're not dealing with any well-intentioned people here at all. These are yeah. violent people with an agenda to take over the vast resources of Venezuela, and they don't care if those poor people in the barrios, if the working class people of Venezuela are killed and destroyed in the process.
1: Hmm. Well, um... Heavy stuff. Uh, unless Greta has has more to to ask you, Margaret. I know it's a, a busy day over there. So thank you for for sharing what you're going through. And um, I really hope we don't hear of you being arrested. I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're ready for it. I just want to want to say again that we're all with you and um, and watching closely. And thank
2: you. Thank you. Well, thank you, and keep keep spreading the word and. Uh, and I hope folks will, will turn up if they can to to help us out. This is really a critical fight that we're engaged in here. thanks so much for the interview.
0: We're here with Pat Elder, a coordinating committee member of World Beyond War.
1: Uh um, how's the background noise? It's fine. Good, good. I mean, you know, you guys are in an embassy takeover, so we're not expecting it to sound like a studio.
3: Yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> there were eighty. Uh, full-time staff members here at the Venezuelan Embassy who were uh, hastily required to go. And on um, Thursday, the last day that they were actually here, I witnessed a uh, a man and his wife emptying out uh, their office, his office. And, uh-huh. you know, they had, they they brought you know, just uh, several dozen boxes from Staples and uh, she was crying. And uh, oh so God. I told her, you know, I'm so sorry. And she translated that to her husband, who said, you're not as sorry as we are. So there's pain here, you know. And, and what it's, it, what that, do
1: you think that these people were actually going through? Do you think they were speaking from a personal point of view or from the, the state of their country that they were speaking?
3: I think in that instance, they were speaking from a personal point of view. I think they uh, are deeply upset. And it's amazing, you could go from one office to another to another. And uh, you know, some offices were completely cleared out and other offices, um, it looked like you know, most of the things are left on shelves. And keep in mind too that there are probably 60 to 80 uh, you know, working Mac and PC systems in various offices with okay. printers and uh, I mean, all of that material is there. And so I, I think the way it works is if we do have the illegal transition to the Guaido uh, regime, then all of the assets of the embassy would uh, transfer to the illegitimate government.
0: Can you explain to our listeners why those employees were forced to leave? Were those employees of President Maduro?
3: Yes, they were. And uh, they were forced to leave because of the Trump administration's policy uh, requiring all embassy staff to uh, to vacate. And the Trump administration does not recognize the Maduro government. And so from the Trump administration's perspective, all Maduro Venezuelan embassy employees were persona non grata and were ordered to leave by uh, the end of Thursday. And uh that's when the urgent call went out. And uh, so I came up here on Thursday and uh, actually had the opportunity to speak to several departing uh, Venezuelan staff members.
0: Can you explain why you felt compelled to go to the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C.? What was your compelling reason for picking up everything and taking your sleeping bag and, and camping out there?
3: Well, it has to do with the history of the, uh, of the entire situation. And, uh, Gosh, I go all the way back to uh, being in college in 1973 and uh, being taught by some brilliant uh, professors who were quite alarmed when uh, a Chilean uh, president, Allende, was murdered. And uh, it's just part and parcel of a United States government foreign policy that stretches back all the way to the uh, Monroe Doctrine, and it's a policy of meddling and of murder and execution and uh, economic uh, imperialism. And so having that background, I I saw uh, the bullying tactics of the Trump administration as simply uh, part of this long-term operation. So I felt compelled to to be here uh, because I saw uh, the brilliant activism that was being waged particularly by, uh, you know, Margaret and Kevin of uh, Popular Resistance and uh, by Medea and Ariel of Code Pink. And these people are visionaries and they understand that this is a historic moment. And uh, I think it's just uh, very urgent for us to call activists to continue to uh, hold this place. Keep in mind too that we are uh, guests of the legitimate Venezuelan government.
0: And what kinds of activities have you been doing while you've been there? What kinds of support roles have you been playing?
3: Well, uh, when I got here on Thursday, the kitchen was, uh, a little on the messy side. And so I took it upon myself and cleaned Mm -hmm. it up immediately. It was only because there were 20 or 30 people who had just eaten lunch. I should remind you the place has been Mm -hmm. absolutely clean ever since. Uh, and, and even before I was here. So, uh, uh, that's a that's another thing the the organization of this uh, collective is stellar uh, I mean I'm looking out at a room right now that is uh, organized uh, and clean uh, the floors are clean uh, all the countertops are clean um, and the place uh, is organized in terms of trash removal and things of that nature so uh, but when I got here, I immediately got into a kitchen detail. And uh, so I've been also playing the role of uh, trying to, uh, you know, more outreach to, uh, to people, especially in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, because, of course, you know, I, I'm, I'm from here. I've been trying to get more people out from the suburbs to come in uh, and be part of this historic event.
0: And how many people are camped out at the embassy right now?
3: I think last night we had 30, and I would say that that number is here uh, right now. And uh, this evening we have a presentation by the Plowshares folks that will begin at four o'clock. And uh, so I hope and expect that our numbers will swell. And uh, I, I think that there are there's a there's a core group here of several dozen who are strongly uh, dedicated to uh, keeping our presence. So. Um, I think that this is, again, marvelous activism, and I am pleased uh, to uh, be a part.
1: I'm, I'm curious, is there any sort of organized leadership, or is it more of a cooperative, everybody pitch in, spontaneous sort of organization that's going on there?
3: Well, I think it's a merger of both. It's a collective, first of all, and so many of the decisions are made on a consensus basis. Everyone seems to be extremely mature. And right. willing to pitch in together, so uh, you know we to uh, a uh, an authoritarian top-down structure, and uh, it's a beautiful system because everything is is uh, uh, organized and everything is taking place because everyone wills it so, and uh, you can imagine yourself. Uh, arriving here at the embassy, yeah. and you would be yeah. part of, of this beautiful scene where we're all pitching in. So uh, it's a good scene.
1: I would say that's characteristic of the peace movement in general. We are able to coexist and and work cooperatively. So that's, that's really inspiring. Good, thank you. Pat, you sent yesterday some pictures from around the embassy, paintings of S- Simone Bolivar and Hugo Chavez library. And um, I think there was also a baseball player's uniform. Well, as
3: far as the baseball uniforms are concerned, I don't think that there is uh, any kind of contradiction between, uh, you know, people who adhere to the ideals of a socialist state and uh, a uh, baseball player who can uh, hit a fastball as well as anyone in the major league. <laughs> Cabrera is hitting 316 right now for the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's on fire and, uh, it is, uh, reassuring for me and, a, uh, a uh, leftist myself, uh, to, and a baseball yeah. fan. <laughs> so, uh, it's really good to see. Uh, and I think also, you know, when you, when you, you know, you, you realize that what, what Venezuela has is a, is, is a socialist state and, uh, um, these are many uh, avowed uh, Marxists or neo-Marxists, however you want to label them. And uh, you know, as a as a uh, young university student, uh, I was taken in by that uh, political philosophy and ideology. And uh, and you know, to see these offices of uh, of uh, books, you know, including uh, you know Zinn's People's History, or a portrait of Jake Guevara, or uh, portraits of uh, you know. Just beautiful people uh, I- embracing each other uh, and, and beautiful, colorful art. And to think that there, uh, there are reading rooms, and libraries with excellent uh, socialist publications from not just Venezuela, but around the world. And I'm uh, certain if the Guaido government comes to power and they take possession of this, they will eradicate the premises from all that kind of literature. Yeah. But it's reassuring to me to see it posted. And the, the halls uh, are covered with many different portraits over the years. Simone Bolivar, El Libertador, the liberator of mm-hmm. America, and uh, you know I picked up some several books that were in Spanish, and I was able to try to tell you a little bit. But one of them, I just happened to pick a page, <laughs> and in the middle of the book, you know, it read that uh, while George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were slave owners. Of course, they were great American uh, leaders, presidents. Um, mm-hmm. Our leaders and presidents in our history, their main goal was the liberation of, of people. That's wow. quite, a, yeah. Yeah,
1: quite a message there.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was just randomly picking open a book. You know how you do. Yeah. Um, so, But it, it, uh, it struck me, and there's a piece on the Code Pink website Uh, And I believe uh, soon, uh, I suppose, on the World Beyond War website uh, regarding um, uh, the comments by Elliot Abrams at the Atlantic Council, uh, and that Mm -hmm. was, uh, gosh, uh, on Friday, or Thursday, actually, when Ariel Gold, the code pick activist, intervened. And, uh, you know, Elliot Abrams lays out the rationale for uh, the entire um, uh, U.S. plan to... uh, uh, you know, uh, orchestrated a coup in Venezuela right. well. To see all, change. all of our portraits is uh, just reassuring because uh, uh, Abrams had the audacity to suggest that the United States government uh, was the true protector of uh, Bolivar's vision.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> wow. I want to ask you the, the question I also asked Margaret which is um, we we can all envision how we don't want this to go, and we can all envision the worst-case scenarios, but what are you hoping for? What do you see as the best-case scenario, or what do you hope will happen today?
3: Well, you know, you, you look at some of the epic uh Uh, movement. Uh, uh, This one, I hope, is similar to Standing Rock in one regard that, you know, it has a long duration, but unlike Standing Rock, I would like to prevail. There's no reason why we we cannot turn this into a Standing Rock. There's no reason why we can't get activists and others from around the country to come to this embassy, and there's no reason why we can't hold it indefinitely. And by doing so, we thwart Uh, the uh, Trump administration and their plans, and perhaps we can wait it out long enough. And uh, in the meantime, we can hope uh, that the progressive elements of the Democratic Party uh, will become, uh, you know, in the ascendancy. uh, And we hope that we can control this uh, at least till the next election, and that's talking uh, quite a few months out now, yeah. but that's that's my vision, and that we can back off from the, this lunacy, because their plans, if they come to fruition of the Trump administration, will only bring bloodshed and civil war to Venezuela. These people uh, will defend their democratic socialism. Yeah. They will defend their right to provide health care for everyone. They will defend their right to have nationalized state industries, and they will defend their right to be a free and independent people.
1: No doubt. No doubt. I I would have never doubted that. You spoke the word lunacy, and lunacy is the word for what we're witnessing. Thank you. Yeah did you have any final thoughts?
0: Yeah, I was just going to mention or ask about the fact that Margaret mentioned it's a a high-risk situation today, she said. And so what does that mean to you, high-risk? Do you feel that, you know, are you worried the Secret Service might barge into the building at any moment? or, Or what are you dealing with at the moment?
3: Well, we're concerned of course uh, but uh, you know I, I, I think many of us are uh, likely to um, risk arrest if, if that eventually occurs, you know eventuality occurs and uh, you know we, we don't we don't look at this and say well I'm going to get arrested or I plan to get arrested uh, instead we look at it uh, in terms of risking arrest uh, and so uh, I myself am prepared to uh, to um, sit inner uh, lobby, Uh, once the uh, police uh, come in through the door, uh, I will block uh, the entrance to the rest of the uh, embassy. That's that's what I intend to do. And uh, I intend to exercise my rights to free speech in in that way. Um, I think that uh, the police actions are illegal under these circumstances. And as a defender of of freedom and, and, and democracy and truth, I'll stand in their way.
0: Thanks for everything that you're doing, Pat, and thanks for sharing with our listeners what is unfolding at the moment at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C.
3: Well, you're welcome, Greta, and thank you so much, Mark, for hooking us up, and uh, I hope things go well. Uh, If you need anything else uh, from me, just holler, okay?